como 10 minutos. Okay. Nada más que eso y de ahí viene el, el, el sendero nuevamente de unos 3-4 metros de ancho. Welcome to another episode of Strangers Abroad. This podcast is a series of conversations with the wonderful and weird people I met while backpacking throughout Latin America. These are the hitchhikers, the couch surfers, and the expats. The thrill seekers, the mountain climbers, volunteers, and society quitters. The people who, for one reason or another, made the decision to challenge themselves, to leave behind the comforts of home, to venture out into the world and see what happens. Here we go. I met Thomas from England at my first hangover ceviche. Our small community of expats and locals would go out dancing every Saturday night and covet at the end for what would become hangover ceviche the next Sunday morning. We would sit at outdoor restaurants with trellises adorned with tangled vines and flowers, providing views of the surrounding volcanoes. Over the clinking of plates and glasses at the restaurant, I overheard Tom raving about a coworker who was teaching him Spanish, a local who would tutor on the side of her regular job. And as an aspiring polygot, I knew I had to meet her. It was refreshing to meet another English speaker who considered it important to learn the language that was being spoken so effortlessly around us, especially after spending so much time with so many tourists and backpackers who refused to put in the effort. Shouting over clinking plates and between bites of octopus and chimichurri, I asked him what he was doing in Arequipa. He told me he was working for a nonprofit that administered after-school programs for underprivileged children in the outskirts of the city. I loved Tom's nonchalance about social justice, as if it were obvious that it should be the logical default profession for everyone. He told me that he'd been bouncing around from one interest to another, starting with a degree in biology, then going full corporate and working public relations, before abruptly quitting one day and ended up here. I also loved his unconcerned attitude towards work as well. I wish that I could be more like that. When I hear the word career, I get kind of panicky. Like, my life isn't being fulfilled if I'm not in one career for the rest of my life which then also gives me anxiety because I have commitment issues. <laughs> so that's why I spend so much time traveling and just avoiding my career altogether. When he would stop by the chocolate shop, where he often came to do his Spanish homework, we would talk about what new projects he was working on with the kids or the state of affairs of the outside world, disconnected from our innocuous chocolate cafe. Thomas works like a blind man, feeling his way around the earth with hands that miss nothing. He has the rare ability to take everything he's learned from school, work, and the world, and distill it into a coherent, overarching purpose. Here's his story. So let's get started. So, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm, my name is Tom Hornbrook, and I'm from England, and I've been living in Peru for the last 14 months. Awesome. So, where did you go to school, and for what, if you, if you did go to school? Okay, so in England, we, 
no school is like high school, but I'm guessing you're asking about college, like university. Right. So I did a, a biology degree at the University of Leeds in England, um, because biology is awesome and it's just the best subject, I think. But um, afterwards, I didn't really specialize in biology. And if you want to become a biologist or anything, you really need to specialize in any science or a lot of disciplines, it's like that. So I was doing a very general degree and learning a lot about different kinds of biology. And I just didn't have, I, didn't, I looked at the kind of opportunities in biology and just none of them really interested me. Hmm. So I decided to switch out of biology. And then what did you switch to? So I then got a job in kind of marketing. I was kind of not sure what to do for a bit, but it was like a kind of business where I was doing a bit of the marketing. And then after a while, I got an internship doing PR, public relations. So like communications, dealing with the media, working up news stories from your clients. And that was at this really tiny, tiny um, PR agency in a little town called Banbury in England, in the middle of nowhere, but kind of near Oxford. And then, after a year of that, I got a job in a really big um, communications and advertising company called McCann. And McCann are famous for being in the TV show, is it Mad Men, where it's all about advertising in New York. Anyway, McCann is the bad guys in that TV show. That was the company I was working for. Um, in England, and I was doing PR for corporate clients, um, for really big clients in England, getting news coverage for them all over the world. I got news coverage for them in pretty much all the newspapers in England, on TV, um, and in other places in the world. So I was getting some really cool experience with them. Whoa. So then how did you go from working corporate to... Arequipa, Peru, and doing social work. Yeah, so I've been doing, in total, I've already been doing PR and marketing for around three or four years. But I really didn't like doing the corporate stuff. It was really not interesting. Often I'd either have no interest in the clients that I was working for, or I would actually just dislike them and be just uninterested. So it's not really good to be doing something that, for trying to promote a client you don't actually really like. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, it was just, um, I, I was good at the PR side of it, the actual communication stuff, the things like writing or trying to work out what's going to work well with the media or um, interviewing a client to try and write a feature about something that then you get published in a magazine. So that was fun. But I then decided to go traveling for a year um, so I went to Asia, I went to India, Nepal, Mongolia, um, China, and Japan. And then I was just, so I had a whole year off from work, and I was just going to a lot of these places, and in places like Nepal, walking along the Himalayas, there's remote villages, you kind of see there's a lot of problems in the world, or in big cities in India, you see there's a lot of problems there's a lot of people who are just in really terrible conditions, really. And so I was thinking, well, there's so many problems in the world that I don't need to work another day on these clients that I don't really like. There's literally plenty of work in trying to solve a lot of these problems without having to work another minute for a client that's just 
a law firm or a big recruitment agency or an energy company. Um, these are not the kind of things that are really, like I felt I was doing something, building something productive with communications, even though I think communications is very important. I think it can do a good job for helping a lot of these issues we have in the world. So then I decided to come out of um, corporate communications and try and get an internship in a kind of non-profit environment. So I also wanted to live abroad, so I was looking and found um, an opportunity in Peru, in Arequipa, and that was called Helping Overcome Obstacles Peru. And they were one of the few organizations that had internships in communications, and it was really a great chance for me to use my communication skills, but then to bridge the gap really into a different sector, into the nonprofit sector from corporate stuff. Whereas I got such great experience in corporate stuff, and maybe better experience than a lot of people would get if they just went straight into nonprofit work. So that was really good. But now right. I've had the great experience, now I'm trying to apply it to the kind of field that I would like to work in. Right, that's a really cool way to kind of set it up because the corporate world is going to be so much more challenging and there's going to be so much more, like, pressure. Do you know what I mean? Because people are going to be spending bigger money. So it's great that you've been able to kind of, like, cultivate that skill and then take advantage of it and then use it towards people who, like, wouldn't be able to have, like, that same kind of resource and knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, that's really cool. So then what is your, what do you do at Hoop and what does Hoop do? Well, I'll start with what Hoop does, which is um, we're an education charity offering free after-school program to kids in a disadvantaged area of Arequipa. It's an area, a neighborhood right on the outside of the city and um, families tend to live in just one or two rooms of a small house and they go to local, they, are, they do have access to free education, which everyone technically has in Peru. So they do go to school during the morning and what we offer in the afternoons is a free after school class in English and art and sports and then we do Saturday programs which could be things like science or it could be music or sports again. Or, and we also have social work program which offers um, lots of community services with our social worker and she is going and doing personal visits to families and helping them deal with family issues or legal issues and putting them in touch with the real right professionals if it's like a legal issue or a health issue. Um, so we, those are some of the things we do. We also do things like business classes for parents and um, oh, wow. a lot of other kind of thing, little things on the side. For example, we planted 200 trees in the community recently, so that was fun. But the, the main focus is education. Cool. And so what was the big project that you guys just did last week? The, well, the fundraising thing. Yeah. I'm going to explain it a bit. I'll still answer, I haven't answered your question about what I do. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Communications and fundraising. Okay. So obviously I started in communications in corporate world. Now I'm in communications, but also the role is about fundraising. So that could be trying to keep relationships with donors good going well or reaching out to new big corporate donors or just trying to get a fundraising activity organized in Arequipa or somewhere else in the world. So one, the big, big fundraising thing we did recently was to try and break a world record. And the record was in hula hooping 
at high altitude because obviously our name is Hoop, which stands for Helping Overcome Obstacles Peru. We wanted, we were thinking, let's do something to do with hula hooping. And the record that we could find that we had a, sh a shot at actually doing would be high, high altitude hula hooping, which is um, was possible because in Arequipa there's this volcano called Chachani and it's 6,000 meters. 6,057 meters above sea level. Wow. Which is, I think, more than 19,000 feet. And it's a few hundred meters more than the previous record, which was set on Mount Kilimanjaro. So we decided to do, I decided to do this huge campaign, this huge challenge. Right. And I had a great couple of people on my team to help, and then we just decided to go for it. That's awesome. And it, like, turned out really well. Fundraising-wise? Yeah, so the challenge was really good, and we had, in the end, 18 people were on the team. It took place over two night or two days and one night, and we hiked up to base camp at 5,000 meters, and then in the middle of the night, we all got up to try and hike to the top. Wow. Now, two people were feeling sick from altitude sickness at base camp, so they stayed Two more people started feeling really sick on the way up, so they came back down with a guide. And then we were 14 people who made it to the top. And it's, a lot of people were freezing cold and had terrible headaches, feeling sick, exhausted. It's hard to climb at that kind of altitude because the oxygen level drops to 50% of the oxygen level at sea level. So it was, some people were finding it really, really tough. But wow. we made it, and when we got to the top, everyone was just... Um, very proud of themselves. Right. They did a great job. That's awesome. And it's also kind of metaphorical about like you guys. I'm assuming that it was like fellow hoop organizers and interns and yeah. workers and stuff that like metaphorically you guys are like climbing the mountain of social injustice and like trying to persevere and like educate and raise awareness and though like it hurts your yeah. body a lot and it's really really challenging you can still you should have been on the team it would have been real motivational i would have been i would have been like metaphorical yep energies. that would have really helped oh and yeah we did get to the top that's awesome get to the top. Yeah, and, it was good. and you're at the yeah. top and you're still able to have fun and like hula yeah, hoop. when we got to the top everyone was great and the conditions were just unbelievably good for hula hooping because i've been <laughs> up there before and it was so windy Right. You can't even talk to the person next to you. Right. You can barely stand up straight. If it was like that, we would not have been able to do it. Right, right, right. But we got up there, there was absolutely no wind, and the sun was out, and it was very, very calm. Right. Up the, mountain. the photos look beautiful, um, fundraising-wise. Like, did it give you guys we, some attention? Yeah, so we triumphantly hula-hooped on the mountain and broke a world record. Woo! Um, which was cool. Well, obviously it was awesome. It was better than cool. Right. It was the best thing ever. <laughs> so it was actually really nice when we when we finished. We all cheered. Everyone was like jumping up and down on the mountain. Right. So that was cool. Off of the actual hula hooping part of it and climbing the mountain, we obviously were doing the fundraiser as well. And when we started, I said I threw a number in the air, just being like, "Yeah, we'll do a crowdfunding thing for charity. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go for like whatever. We'll set a goal like ten thousand dollars." I said, no, no, wait, that's way too much. We're never going to raise that. Uh -huh. But my, the other people in the office said, wait, yeah, 10000 let's do it. Let's go for 10000 
This segues into a, a series of questions that I have because there is some kind of, I don't want to say controversy over the effectiveness of charities, especially when they're, so wait, let me back up. Who organizes hoop? Is it a locally run thing or is it an outsider kind of coming in and setting up shop? It was founded by a Austrian girl, a Taiwanese guy an English girl huh. and a Peruvian so it was very international right so it was it was definitely a lot of different people coming in and kind of thinking oh let's do this because it'll be really good mm-hmm and so now what what do what do the nationalities and like reflect among the workers and interns and people who are who are working for hoop um, well, we have a few staff members, so there's the director, and she kind of is in charge, obviously. Mm-hmm. She's from the U.S. And then there's me, who's in charge of fundraising and marketing, and I'm from England. And then we have, we used to have Michelle, who's from Canada. Right. So she's now been replaced by a girl from the U.S., so we've got a lot of Americans. Um, then the other two staff are Peruvian, and they're part-time, and we have a part-time Peruvian program assistant who helps run the school and make sure we've got everything nice. we need. And then we have a legal assistant because we're going through a lot of legal stuff at the moment with our land and actually owning the land where we work. So um, we've got a proven legal person doing part-time as well. Interesting. So there sometimes can be some controversy, especially with, it's called like the white savior effect, you know, of people coming in from other countries to countries that are impoverished or areas that are impoverished and sometimes they are counteractive to actually helping the issues. So what are some first-hand experiences that you've had that either prove or disprove that? Well, in these kind of, yeah, there's obviously a lot of people that would come here and then just do a job for a couple of weeks and then go and then that could be really damaging because can't really be productive in such a short time right. without getting to know the community. Often a big problem is that people would come in and come and do a job for free that would otherwise be done by a local. So it might be that you want to build something, so you think, oh, let's just get loads of volunteers to do it, but really what might be better is to raise some money and then employ local builders. Mm-hmm. So this whole um, uh, effect of coming and volunteering in an unethical way is definitely one where you're kind of you're taking jobs by being rich enough to be able to work for free when someone else would be doing that job if you weren't there right so that's one of the concerns i think but with hoop we have quite a strong focus on english so our um our, what we're doing is basically giving free classes in English one hour a day. We have a second hour every day, and that's for sports or art or something. Mm-hmm. So you've got to ask, is, if we weren't here, would we be, yeah, would someone else be doing this job? Are we effectively coming here and taking a job from somebody? 
which I think is pretty easy to say, no, we're not doing that because if we weren't here, there just wouldn't be a hoop and there wouldn't be all these volunteers from around the world teaching English. And we also have volunteers from Peru teaching as well. Right. So it's like local volunteers and international volunteers coming and doing something that would not otherwise be done. And also giving, offering a service that some people maybe don't want and that's fine and they would just not necessarily come. But we have quite a lot of demand for what we're doing. Parents want to send their kids to Hoop because we're offering them something that the middle class and the upper class people have access to. And that's why middle class and upper class Peruvians send their kids to very expensive English schools. And they're doing this because they know that if you speak English, it's like being very empowered in the international jobs market, in the local jobs market. And the kids that we work with would never, ever, ever have a chance to learn English if we weren't there. So we're kind of giving them something that all the middle and upper class parents already know about, which is this great um, tool for empowerment for yourself and for your family, which is being able to speak English. And, you know, there's another flip side, which is people think maybe that we're coming and promoting English and saying English is like the most important thing, which of course it's not. Um, but people just understand that because of the way the world has grown into this big giant English machine, that if you speak English, you have such better prospects in life. And some of our kids speak pretty good English. That's so awesome. Really for them. Yeah, it's maybe not fair for kids in two neighborhoods down in the city where there isn't a school like this. Right. You can only, as Hoop, we can only work with a small number of people relatively. There's a million people in the city. We work with 100 children and maybe 20 or 30 parents. So we're just doing a little bit. Right, right, right. So you really think that it's kind of... The whole like white saviour thing is definitely something we would want our volunteers to be aware of. Yes. Which is why we give them quite a detailed reading list of things they should read. And I think we kind of make people aware of what they're doing and that you're not allowed to just come along and take pictures of yourself with a... Yeah, those are the worst photos. Is like yeah. the white what girl with all of the African children around her, and it's like yeah. ah. We do allow people to take photos, but not in their first two weeks. Right. So they have to actually build a relationship with the kids. They just right. have to be there just because they're there as a teacher. Right. And then after two weeks, of course, they they're gonna want to take some pictures to right. the kids with and stuff. So and there's relationships, pictures, but not for the first two weeks. And we don't allow people to just come and visit the school for one week or two weeks. It's got to be a minimum time of two months. Right. Which even we would like it to be longer than that. Right. Yeah. You know, we have enough volunteers as well. Right. Well, especially with working with children, those relationships become so intimate so quickly. You know, like it's really hard to, like the, the lines between professionalism and and personal, like, blur, because you start to get emotionally attached a bit. Yeah. So you really feel... Yes, as well, they become yeah. very affectionate very quickly, so... Oh, absolutely. It's, all, uh, yeah. it's like a two-way street. Yeah, we try and make sure the volunteers all know, like, to be explained carefully that they're going to be leaving, give them a week's notice, and then do right. a, a proper goodbye with them instead of just leaving, because then the kids could feel like, why did they leave? They're abandoning me. Yeah. So, like, they're young kids. We do have a high turnover of volunteers as well, relatively, although we want to, like, have more long-term volunteers, which we're getting. We're getting some really awesome volunteers with more experience as teachers, 
and we're training our volunteers better than we ever have. Right. Sure that they're like really good teachers. They're really aware of the situation. Very culturally sensitive. That's awesome. That's awesome. I have a book recommendation for you when this is uh, over. So you really think that Coop is kind of focusing and really trying to resolve the systematic issues that it's that it's focusing on. Um, yeah. Well, the big there's a lot of education reform needed in Peru. Right. And as Hoop, we were invited to a a little mini conference in Arequipa, which was. Um, on education Mm -hmm. and the whole education system is being um, reformed and they're making English a huge huge um, focus now so they're going to try and make every kid have access to a good standard of English in Mm -hmm. schools uh, by the year 2021 so that for us I think is good um, kind of verification that what we've already been doing for quite a few years it's actually something that is important to the Peruvian government as well, and I think to a lot of Peruvians. Right. So all of the money that you've been raising, where does that go? Because it seems as though, like, Hoop is a very small kind of contained type of a charity, whereas there are other things like the Peace Corps or working for the United Nations, and, like, the money tends to funnel through those charities, like, in very strange ways and doesn't always end up getting back to the people that it's trying to provide for it. So do you know kind of like where the funds that you just raised are going towards? Well, the funds we just raised for the fundraising campaign, uh, we were very specific about what it was going to pay for because that's part of doing a good fundraiser is that you want to tell people where the money's going to go. Right. So that particular fundraising was done to cover the cost of school rental for a year, our school books and pens and well, all the school equipment we would need for a year. Mm-hmm. It would also pay for the volunteer coordinator, which includes, and that's a part-time position, which is the volunteer coordinator deals with recruitment and then doing inductions and then training, and we're doing more and more training in other so it's basically training volunteers is part of the money. And then also to pay for a social worker as well, as part of our new social work program, mm-hmm. that was part of the fundraising. And then we uh, um, we said that if we get the money, we would start a new maths program as well, which would probably involve employing somebody for a couple of hours a week to do a maths tuition for for some of the kids because uh, if you rely on volunteers too much they've got no accountability uh, to do a good job whereas if we thought we would raise a bit of money and spend that money on having a maths teacher just for a few hours a week so it's not going to cost a huge amount and that money we raised is going towards that as well nice but in terms of like the whole charity we've got other costs like we have an office we have to pay bills we pay uh, me I get a salary we also pay as well as the social worker, it's the director, and then there's the legal assistant and the program assistant. So we're essentially, we're running a school for more than 100 kids, and it's got a lot of costs for its staff, it's got the costs with bills, we rent the school we're using at the moment. Right. These sort of things, sort of things always have costs. Right, right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, how do you think that the children that you work for perceive you? and perceive non-Peruvians versus if you were a Peruvian? Do you think that you're ever treated differently or that, or are they just kind of like, you're a human? You have the very young kids and they're just like, you're human. Yes. They're they're five or six years old and 
really there's no difference to them. Um, and yeah, like a lot of our older kids have been lucky to be exposed to people from all over the world. So they'll hear about places like Austria or Taiwan or England or Belgium and they just, a lot of kids wouldn't normally have access to people like that. Right. So even before we've taught them anything, I think we've kind of opened their eyes to the fact that there are these other places and there are these other people. As to what they think of us, um, they all seem to like us. So right. I think they, I don't know, I think the, I don't know about the kids, but I know the parents um, often remark that they're just very humble and glad that people want to come to the other side of the world to do something like this. Mm. I think they think it's pretty, it's really good, and they're just happy that we're, we're like, happy to do that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, do you have any first-hand experiences that come to mind that have, like, really kind of reconfirmed why you're there? Do you know what I mean? Like, seeing a kid do something or, you know, just, like, a really good memory of, like, why you're reminded why you're there, especially, like, during the days when it can be really challenging? Yeah. Well, my job's always fun. Yeah. I don't have any non-fun days at work. Even when it is stressful and challenging, it's because I'm working on something really exciting. Right. But um, because I'm I'm an office guy, I didn't ever get to go to the school that much. So mm. I um, but I was involved in starting the Saturday program on Saturday mornings, and that was actually you know that wasn't my job. It was just me wanting to volunteer. So I set up a Saturday program, which was six Saturdays in a row. And because I have my biology background, I started. I wanted mm. to do it on science. And also because a lot of kids, even in private schools, the quality of science lessons often excludes doing hands-on practical science experiments. Cool. Because I know teachers in fairly expensive private schools, and they do a lot of theory in science, which is great. They're teaching them about science, but they don't get to do very many hands-on proper science experiments. So I would pick a topic every Saturday morning, and um, we would do really cool, really fun science experiments for kids from years age four to about 13. And, well, firstly, it was really awesome because one time they were there like one hour early for the class on a Saturday because mm-hmm. they were excited to come to science class. So I mean, that was really cool. I was like, is someone here already? Because I had to go there really early in the morning and set up all these science experiments. And I'd be stressing out on Friday night in my house doing science experiments until midnight. But then the kids would be there an hour early and it was just the best. And then they'd all run in and just, it would get a bit chaotic, but kind of one or two times, they'd just run in and just want to go and do all these science experiments. But then there was one time, I don't know if you've ever made an electromagnet. You wrap a wire around a screwdriver or a piece of metal you wrap it really tight and then you connect it to a battery and the screwdriver becomes a magnet and you can pick up paper clips. Oh, that's so cute. So if you do that to a kid who's never seen that thing before or would have no idea that a, a normal screwdriver could suddenly pick up paper clips with my, my, my magnetic power, they were like mind blown. And right. They, that was really cool. That was probably the best volunteering moment I've had. Oh, that's so cute! Yeah, that's got to be really, like, magical for them. Yeah. Um, and you're totally right on how that's something that, like, they wouldn't be exposed to. It reminds me of, like, my Saturday mornings when I was a kid. We would watch Bill Nye the Science Guy. 
And do you, do, you have, do you have that in the UK at all? Do you know who that is? Oh, my God. Okay, so I'll send you a link. Bill Nye the Science Guy was this guy who created this, like, very DIY TV show out of his, pretty much his garage in Seattle. But he broke down science to be so palatable for kids. And, like, he is such a rock star, especially for kids of the 90s, like... People love Bill Nye the Science Guy, so I'll send you I'll send you some of his stuff too. Yeah, it was about doing these kind of science experiments for kids. So yeah. I was doing a lot of research for science, kids' science experiments. I was going around town trying to buy the most random, weird yeah. things I would need for a science experiment. Right, like right, right. Record. It's like you can't find vinyl records in Harry Potter. Yeah, that's probably little, true. Little metal beads, but the kind that you use to decorate cakes. I'm sure you know where to get them. I know where to get those. You know, because you know all the cake baking places. <laughs> but I went to the street and I found these random, random things that we would need for science. Right. So what have been some of the challenges, not only working, but also living in a totally different culture um, and a totally different climate for you as well? Um, how has that been challenging or rewarding for you? Well, I just really love living in Arequipa, it's, it's the best city in South America to live in, and um, I kind of always wanted to move and live somewhere um, completely different, but never really did it, and so this was a great chance for me, and I kind of adapt quite well to places, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so I don't have any kind of moments of shock or horror, and when it comes down to it, there's, there's there are big differences between here and Peru, but there's so many similarities and people are very friendly and nice so it was Absolutely. actually very you know easy to live there and nice to be working there and the more I live there the more happy I am just being you know someone who's able to live in a different country right I think it's a good thing to be able to do and now I've come back and I'll see all my friends and stuff and be like yeah I've been living in Peru I feel like I've accomplished something just by like being able to live there, I think. Totally. Um, did you know about Arequipa before? Like, did you, like, I had no idea what it was I about. I know about Arequipa. Nope. I got an internship there. Yep. And then I was like, oh, well, this place is pretty good. Blown away <laughs> by happy. how freaking awesome it so is. I was lucky, yeah. Right. So after all of your travels abroad and then living abroad, how has home changed for you? Or what does it, what does I it don't mean know. to I you? I think um, the thing about going away for a long time and coming back is you realize that things haven't changed at home, but you're the one who's changed. And then you come back and I mean I'm, I haven't actually caught up with all my best friends and I think that they're the, the most awesome people in the whole world. Right. So I'm wondering how they've changed or whether they think I've changed and I've come back a completely different person. Right. But I, I don't think so. I think it's all going to be great. <laughs> right, right, right. Because I've only been away for 14 months and I've seen a few of my friends in Arequipa, actually. Oh, no way. Two of my best friends came to visit and before that one of my other best friends came to visit. Uh-huh. Um, who happened to be traveling to South America, so it's really cool. Cool. Um, so how, so you're home for a month, how much longer will you be in Arequipa after? Well, who knows? I mean, it's um, been a year and a bit now, and I would like to stay for maybe another six months. Mm -hmm. um, I need to find a good person to replace me in my job. Right. 
Um, and then maybe after six months, it'll be time to move on. Right. For something else. Do you have any idea if you want to continue being abroad or find something closer to home? Um, I don't think I'm ready to move back to England yet. Yeah. As much as I love England. Um, and the thing is that I might have to go where the good jobs are and there's a lot of good charity jobs in London. Or maybe somewhere else in South America so I can really get good at Spanish because my Spanish still uh, sucks a little bit. <laughs> That's my mom. I've been there for a year because my job is in English because we're marketing to English-speaking people. Right. We're trying to raise funds from English-speaking people usually. Right. Um, so, yeah, I maybe would do something in South America. But I'd like to move into yeah, another communications role in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still taking classes with Cindy? Yeah. She's the best. I learned so much just with, like, the month and a half that I was doing stuff with her. Yeah, yeah. She's great. I'm now doing a deal with her where she gets to keep my oven in exchange for... <laughs> That's... Spanish <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a pretty good exchange. Yeah. Um, so, what did you feel like you've learned about yourself by putting yourself in a new environment and job context what has surprised you about the whole experience um well my job in corporate communications i was kind of bottom of the pile i was one of the most junior people in the team so now i'm at the top i'm the in charge of a small team of well, me and two interns in charge of communications but people always come to me to ask for what what are we going to do with this even if it's not really my job so i think I'm kind of learning to manage people and mm-hmm. to kind of be a decision maker, which I like because I'm very, I can be really particular about how I want something to be, especially if it's like our communications, our written work, or how something should look for our reports or anything like that. I'm always very, I have quite, I can be quite like um, pedantic about whether there should be a certain amount of spacing here or the colors <laughs> we're using. Mm-hmm. So I've actually become kind of power crazy with that. <laughs> I'm like, no, it needs to be like this, this, and this, which is great. Because, I mean, I get to do everything exactly how I want. And everybody kind of is starting to come to me and being like, Tom, can you make sure this looks good? Because they kind of now trust that I will make stuff look awesome and mm. make stuff sound great. And if it's in English, I'll make sure the written English is really, really good quality. Mm-hmm. So I've learned to be kind of a dictator of communications. Great. <laughs> I've, learned, I've had to learn to manage people. That's the hardest thing. Because I'm not used to managing people, and I'm not the most organized person in the world. I'm good at the things like making sure a piece of writing is good, or making sure a poster looks good, or some sort of marketing material, mm-hmm. or anything that's like a official hoop document or report. You can make that look great. Mm-hmm. But things like making sure the whole team is being efficient and working together. That's something I'm kind of still learning. Cool. All right, so to to close it off, one of the questions I like asking, although we speak the same language, tell me a quote that kind of motivates you, stays with you to do to keep doing what you're doing. One I often think of is, I don't know if you said it, is um, you should do one thing every day that scares you. So if you're like a little worried about doing something, and it's just a little thing, you're just a tiny bit scared, you should do one thing every day that scares you. That's how you learn and grow. It's quite a well-known thing, and I can't remember who said it. Yeah. 
Right, right. Out of all the places that you've been to, which one surprised you the most? In the world? Yeah, in the world. The whole world? The whole world. Um, was it Chow Chow Cafe Night? Yeah. The most surprising place I've been to in the world was probably the USA. <laughs> the country is insane. That's totally fair. Like, I was, I've been to China, but I think things in the USA are, in the USA are very surprised about. Just like little like, details. Right. Like, um, just like you can buy guns really easily. Unfortunately. And lots of really great things as well about the USA. Right. Um, like the people are very friendly. There's such a huge range of people. It's just insane. You meet like all, every kind of person in the world. Right. Lives in the USA. And it's just a very strange place. Right, right, right. Well, it's an interesting back and forth between um, the United Kingdom, British Isles, and Americans. And I actually, I'm going to say, like, maybe all English speakers, but maybe it's just because I have an affinity for the British. But both parties get kind of so excited when they interact with each other, like when Americans come to England and... British people, uh, UK people come to America because we speak the same language, we speak it very similarly, but the differences are so much more pronounced that I think that we both kind of like get off on it, on how yeah. bizarre it is. Yeah, um, that's why, because I would expect America to use like a big version of England, and it's not. It's, it's so, yeah. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. I we're definitely think. English here, though, we're very particular and weird, so. Yeah. I definitely think that uh, America is also one of the weirdest countries I've ever been to. Like, and I feel like firmly believe that after being to like so many other places, I'm like, this yeah. people are nuts here. But I do believe yeah. that there's crazy people, but there's also like incredible people. Yeah. The best Americans you meet are the ones that have been outside America for sure. That, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some good ones that haven't that haven't left yet, you know. But uh, but I'm trying to get them to get that. I exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I kind of believe that, at least in New York, I mean, London is, is the only other city, um, there's at least one person from every single country living within the five boroughs. And I think that London is probably the only other city that could maybe hold, hold claim to that. But, like, I love... Being on the subway and just looking around and nobody, it's a little world. Everybody you see is like totally different looking than all of the people standing around them. And nobody is upset. Like the beautiful thing about the subway is everyone is equally miserable. But it's not because of like what the people around them look like and through history has offended them or any like, you know, like cultural vendettas. But we're all just equally miserable because we want to get on our day and we're on the subway and we're all in this together, you know? Um, so it's like definitely a more, at least this area is like more socially evolved. That does not mean that like racism and sexism and homophobia is like immune to this area because it's totally here too. But it's, I don't know, the subway is like kind of one of my new favorite places. <laughs> it's very... I haven't been to a country yet where there isn't racism. It's still really, like, everywhere. Oh, yeah. So it's not, it's not good, yeah. Have you felt any kind of um, racism towards you for being white in Peru? Um, there's biases, I 
think. Yeah. Um, but they're usually where people would give me more, um, like, preferential treatment. Hmm. Because I'm white, so yeah, I think so. And I think, for example, our social worker is Italian, and she's white, and she got a meeting with the municipality mayor, and I said to her, do you think you would have got the meeting if you were Peruvian? And she was like, no, probably not. Because they just don't respect each other, and they think because we're white, um, we come in with this, like, sense of, yeah, so I think there's, they're giving us, like, a sense of entitlement, or they consider us to be more entitled, perhaps, to um, our point of view, or uh, right. giving them our t- giving us their time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like, the, that's with this one example with the social worker and the authorities, where we got somewhere. And I think it might have been more difficult if we were just Peruvians. Right. So at least you feel like you're using your privilege for good. Um, good in yeah, a very strange sense. It's, it's still the, fucked the, up. Good about it anyway. Interesting. So thanks for thanks for being on. Thanks for talking thanks to me. For having me. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah. Thomas is currently furthering his education. He was able to unite his love for social justice and travel while getting an education in Amsterdam for gender studies, which was my major in college as well. So I asked him why he chose gender studies, and he replied, well, I wanted to combine my common skills in a socially good or meaningful career. I guess we talked about that. Over the past few years, I've become more of a feminist, I guess. And over the past year, I became really interested in studying gender because it was becoming more and more noticeable as I was becoming more aware of it. In Peru, a lot as well, and especially Arequipa, which is a fairly conservative and traditional culture. He has recently created an incredible blog called Boy Feminism, which articulates his consciousness rising, coming from a privileged white English-speaking male. This blog encourages men to become more mindful of misogyny and how to be an ally for the feminist movement. Boy, oh boy, do we need more guys like that. In our next episode, we meet Cindy my Spanish tutor while living in Peru, and who has taught me more than just her language. Discover a passion, so that's the most important thing, uh, because even if it's Spanish or English, it's like teaching a language, and I love when someone reach or they can speak or express uh, something in another language. It's just like really cool to be there in the learning process. Next time on Strangers Abroad.